Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to the epistle of 3 John. 3 John. Back of your Bibles. 3 from the back in your Bibles is 1st, 2nd, and then 3 John. For those of you who have a pew Bible in front of you, turn to page 644. I hope you have your own Bible, though. Take some notes. Third John. You probably haven't been here in a while. And as you're turning to Third John, I'll ask you to stand. I'd like to read the whole epistle, the whole letter together. Would you please stand with me as we read the third epistle of John? Can you find it? You probably already passed it three or four times because it's just one page. Third John, the entire letter. Let's read it. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God and, will do, and you, you will do well. Because they went for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, so we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds which he does, pratting against us with malicious words and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil is not seen God. Demetrius, he has a good testimony from all. And from the truth itself. And we also bear witness. And you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write. But I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly. And we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. You may be seated. I thought long and hard of a very scholarly title uh, for this message. And those of you who have already received your handout can see that very, very uh, well-thought-out scholarly title. The title of this message is Host! Exclamation mark. Host! Be a host. Those who boast are toast. So host! Those who boast are toast. We're going to figure out what toast means. Not what you think. What's going on in 3 John? 
Have you ever been in this book before? I know it's a rare one for, uh, for the church to teach in. It's uh, only one chapter in length, only 14 verses in length. You may not have ever uh, have gone through a study of Third John. But believe it or not, I was looking at this epistle uh, a couple weeks back when we were discussing the plurality of leaders in the church. And I was very much uh, desiring to enter into this book during that small series that we had a few weeks ago. I decided against it because I wanted it to, to stand on its own. Because really, Third John is a story. It's a story about a situation in a first century church in Asia Minor. It's a story of uh, an Apostle John, the beloved of Jesus, the Apostle John writing to a man named Gaius somewhere in Asia Minor. We don't know exactly where. We don't know where, where the church was. But John had a relationship with Gaius and he was writing to Gaius who was uh, some sort of a, a prominent figure in the church. Maybe not an elder, but nevertheless a well-known individual in the church. And John was writing to Gaius so that Gaius would receive a man named Demetrius, whom John was sending to the church on his behalf. And he said, Gaius, I want you to receive Demetrius, just as you've already been doing, Gaius. You've already been hosting missionaries, apostolic delegates that I've been sending your way. You've already been doing that, and I'd like you to host this man too. But while you prepare to open up your door to this man, watch out, Gaius. Because there's another man rising up in your church named Diotrephus or Diotrephus. And Diotrephus is a man who loves the preeminence, who loves the spotlight. And John wrote to Gaius sometime in the late, mid to late 60s A.D., to urge him to host Demetrius and to urge Gaius to watch out for a rising church leader who was abusing his power named Diotrephus. So let's take a look at this book. See what we can learn from it. This letter. If you look at verse 1 again, this is a letter from the Apostle John to a man named Gaius. He says, the elder, John introduces himself as the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Keep in mind, this is a personal letter, much like you and I would write a letter today. I mean, write an email today, because uh, we don't write letters anymore. But we did so today to Robert, and I'm proud of that. This is a personal letter from the Apostle John to a, a friend of his. He calls him the beloved Gaius, agapetos, beloved, meaning dear friend. And he'll use that term agapetos three more times in the epistle. He'll use it in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 11, each of which really delineate some of the sections of the epistle, some of the, some of the different sections of the letter. Beloved is a key word. And the greeting continues as he speaks to Gaius. He writes in verse 2. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things, Gaius, and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Zeroing in on verse 2 for just a moment, 
there's a, there's a number of key words here that we need to define, I think, that are very important, actually, to the letter. John writes, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper. Gaius, I pray that you may prosper in all things. The word prosper there, uadao in Greek, it means that things would go well for you. That, that you would achieve. It can also mean that you would earn or gain money. That you'd be blessed financially. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. But it's always tied to some kind of physical blessing. Physical success. It means to be successful. Personally, physically successful. And he says, Gaius, I pray that you may be successful in all things. And then he goes on to say, and that you may be in health. The Greek word there for health means uh, to literally be in good health. It can also mean a sound or good teaching, to have sound or good doctrine. But here the context really implies that he's talking about his physical health. So he's saying, Gaius, I pray that you may be uh, prosperous, that is to be physically successful, and I pray that you may be in good health, that you may be physically in good health. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper, that you may be successful in all things and be in good health just as your soul prospers. The word soul there, suke, one's inmost being. The deep most part of a person, most often related to their spiritual life. Just as your soul prospers, as you walk with the God in this life, Gaius, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul, your inmost being, the deep most part of you, prospers. You know, prayers for other people are always a kind gesture. Um, and they're always much appreciated. Anytime someone says, I'm praying for you, Neil, uh, it's an encouragement to me. Uh, sometimes I'll receive a, a text or an email or, or, or have a conversation with someone and they'll let me know that they've been praying for me. And it's encouraging. It's, it's uplifting. But John's prayer for Gaius is quite unique. Read it carefully. Read it carefully. One more time. And this time, pay attention to the words, just as. We'll read it again. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. To put it another way, on your outline, essentially, John is saying, I pray that your personal success and physical health would be a reflection, write that down, reflection of your spiritual health. Essentially, John is saying, I pray that your personal success and your physical health would be a reflection of your spiritual health. My question to you is, would you like John to pray this prayer for you? Would you like John to ask God to give you personal success and physical health in proportion to your level of spiritual vitality right now? As one scholar put it, if the same prayer wish were made and realized 
For some Christians in our churches, they just might be in the hospital. If our physical prosperity, our physical success, and our health was contingent upon our spiritual vitality in its entirety, as one scholar put it, many of us might be in the hospital right now. But all kidding aside, the real question here is, are we that naive to suppose that these things aren't interrelated? Are we that naive to suppose that our, our physical success in life, our physical health, has absolutely zero, nothing, nada to do with our spiritual vitality? Are we that naive? There's teaching out there called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is teaching... Uh, that you will certainly succeed in life. You will certainly be of good health in life if you have enough faith. The prosperity gospel teaches that if you have enough faith, if you're, uh, if you're looking upon Christ, if you're striving with Him, if you're doing everything God's asked of you, then you will definitely have success in life and you will definitely have good health. That's the prosperity gospel. But you know what? We reject that teaching. It's not the teaching of the New Testament. The prosperity gospel is unorthodox and it should be rejected. But you know, we go too far when our rejection of the prosperity gospel leads to a complete rejection of the interrelatedness of our spiritual and physical lives. On your outline, I put it this way. We reject the prosperity gospel but we acknowledge the biblical interrelatedness of our spiritual and physical lives. There's a balance between the two. There's a balance between saying, you will definitely succeed if you have enough faith. No, we reject that. That's not the teaching of the New Testament. Neither do we say, well, your physical health, your personal life, your success, your ability to, to uh, you know, have a... Have a of a good life has nothing to do with your spiritual vitality. We also reject that. We, we're somewhere in the middle here in the New Testament, in the teaching of, of God's Word, that there is a relationship between spiritual vitality and physical well-being. There is a relationship between the two. The Bible makes it clear that a deep and robust spiritual life will generally, generally, overflow into many physical blessings too. You know, we're all familiar. Turn over to Proverbs 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Hold your spot in 3 John because you might not ever find it again. Hold your spot in 3 John and turn to Proverbs chapter 3, middle of your Bible, right after Psalms. We all are familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Most of us are, not all. Most of us are familiar with Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Let's read it. Chapter 3 of Proverbs, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Wonderful verse. Many, for many of you, it's your favorite verse. It's your favorite uh, section uh, of the Old Testament or of the entire Bible. We're all familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. 
But have you read 7, 8, 9, and 10 lately? Continue on in Proverbs 3. Look at verse 7. Solomon writes, And do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. You see, the, the beauty of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 doesn't stop at verse 6. It continues in the following verses in which Solomon makes the general principle manifest to all of us. And that is that if we will fear the Lord, honor Him, and shun evil, if our spiritual life will be robust, if our walk with God will be intimate and thriving and successful spiritually, then, in verse 8 of Proverbs 3, then it will be health to our flesh and strength to our bones. It will translate into physical blessing. And in verse 10, so that our barns would be filled with plenty and our vats will overflow with new wine. The Bible makes it clear that a deep and robust spiritual life with God generally overflows with physical blessings too. You say, but Neil, I, I feel like I'm putting the Lord first. I feel like I've put the Lord first in my life. I, I, I pray each day. I confess my sins regularly. I'm in good harmony with those around me, with, with my spouse, with my children, with my family, with my friends, with my church, with my neighbors. Pastor, I, I feel like I'm striving with the Lord in all things. And yet, I'm in poor, poor health. Or I'm constantly hurting financially. Or I've got this, this trial and this hardship that just never goes away despite how much I cling to the Lord. I had a good friend just this past week say to me, I quote, Pastor, I'm trying to live right, but it just feels like God is against me. I'm trying to live right, but it just feels like God is against me. That every time I, I, I draw near to Him, I, I end up in the same situation in life you know I, I I think many of us can relate with a statement like that at times I think many of us can relate with the notion that maybe it's not today that we've had our our highest moment of spiritual vitality but maybe there, there have been times in our life where we were especially close to the Lord and yet it was still difficult with our health it was still difficult with our our, our finances it was still difficult with a serious hardship that was weighing on us. And we wondered, God, why can't my intimacy with you spiritually translate into physical blessing? There's no easy answer. There's no easy answer here. Solomon's Proverbs, though, they speak of general truths. Things that will usually come about. But the Proverbs, they are not promises. And sometimes what is generally the case for others is not what happens in your life. Sometimes you suffer physically in spite of your robust spiritual life. And to that all I can say, 
All I can say on the authority of God's word is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. I want to read it in its entirety and I just want you to listen. Jesus speaks to those who are concerned about the day-to-day of life, concerned about the physical nature of life and of some of the things that they're going without. And he says in verse 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more important than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit of his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. It will not always be the case that your level of spiritual vitality will translate into physical blessing. But we do know from the Proverbs and from many other portions in the New Testament, 1 Timothy um, 4.8 is one that comes to mind, that there is a direct correlation. There is a direct correlation between your intimacy with God now and what is going to happen both in your physical life and most certainly in the afterlife. There is a connection. There is a translation. There is a one-to-one. And it may not happen in this life. You might go through this life in a lot of pain, in a lot of hurt, with illness, with difficulty. But there will be a time of translation where what you did in your spiritual walk with God, while it may not come in this physical life, it will come in the life hereafter. Amen? Stay the course. Stay the course. Do not lose heart. Remember that Jesus knows everything you need and he will remember every trial that you've endured in his name. But let's return now to, to Third John. Let's return now to the, this letter. So John prays for Gaius. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. John's prayer was most welcome for Gaius, because Gaius was a man of integrity and great honor. And so John's prayer for him was something that Gaius hoped that God would grant because his spiritual vitality was strong. By the way, the words, my children, in verse 4, may signify that John was one of the first people to evangelize Gaius. It's possible that John led Gaius to faith. 
Therefore, he's calling him one of his children. That may also be a generic term, which is, which is also used generically in, in the letter of 1 John. But in any event, John is overjoyed by Gaius' character. Other brethren, in verse 3, have been speaking highly of Gaius, saying that the truth is in this man. Gaius walks in truth. And there's something else that Gaius does well. Gaius is a good host and provider for the missionaries and traveling preachers and evangelists. Look at verses 5 to 8. He says, Beloved, Gaius, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, for God's name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such people that we may become fellow workers for the truth. John says, Gaius, my friend, you do a faithful work whenever you receive visiting missionaries, preachers, and evangelists. Whenever you provide for them, whenever you care for them, whenever you send them out with good provision for their continued journey ahead, you do well. A little bit of explanation about about this first century context. The apostles, the twelve apostles and Paul, uh, could not lead every church in the first century. It was not physically possible. Uh, between them, they, they couldn't be in all the churches uh, leading and preaching and teaching and shepherding. And so they urged each local church to appoint elders in every church to shepherd, teach, and lead. And the apostles would visit on occasion to various churches. When the apostles could not visit, in this case, John was unable to be in Gaius' church at that moment in time. When the apostles couldn't visit the churches, they would send well-qualified delegates on their behalf. Some would be well-known to the churches. John calls them brethren in verse 5. Others would be uh, strangers to the congregation. And Paul, or John calls them strangers at the end of verse 5. In any event, whether they were known or unknown, they would come with apostolic endorsement. They would come with a letter of recommendation, so to speak. The church would be able to check their LinkedIn page and see the referrals of the people that referred them. For those of you on LinkedIn, which is, sounds like it's about two of you. The church would know, based on the recommendation of the apostle, whether this individual was trustworthy or not to teach and lead. These delegates would also, uh, they would enter into the churches in the spirit of having a plurality of leaders in the local church. John, the apostle, is commending Gaius for hosting these well-qualified delegates. These were traveling missionaries, they were endorsed by the apostles, and to make their journey possible, they relied on a measure of support from the churches that hosted them. In fact, these particular missionaries that John speaks of were probably full-time missionaries that had no other earthly job. Why? Because John says in verse 7 that they took nothing from the Gentiles. That is to say, they took nothing from the, the, the 
from earthly means of compensation. They took nothing from the world. They had no earthly job. They did no Gentile work, so to speak. Instead, their entire livelihood came from the work of the gospel and they needed families like the household of Gaius to support them. John tells them in verse 8, We therefore, speaking collectively, we all ought to receive such delegates that we may become fellow workers for the truth. As Gaius received them, he became a co-worker in the gospel ministry. But while John wrote this letter of commendation to Gaius for his spirit of hospitality, John also wrote to Gaius to warn him about a man who desired none of these things. In that same church, in Gaius' church, was a man, an elder no doubt, by the name of Diotrephus. He may have been the pastor elder or one of the leading elders of that same church. But Diotrephus was a man of great pride. He did not wish to share his power and authority over the church with other well-qualified individuals. And we pick up that part of the letter in verse 9. Take a look at 9 and 10. John writes, I wrote to the church, Gaius, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Unlike Gaius, the elder Diotrephus, the elder of the church somewhere in Asia Minor that John is writing to, did not want his church, and I emphasize his church, because that's how he thought of it. He did not want his church to receive these traveling missionaries, even those who were vetted by the apostles. John told Gaius in verse 9, he said, Gaius, I once wrote to the church. I once wrote a, a letter. I sent it to Diotrephus, Diotrephus. But Diotrephus ignored it. He loves to have the preeminence. And he decided not to receive us. It was likely that John wrote to Diotrephus before he wrote to Gaius. And that Diotrephus ignored the letter. I'm looking forward to reading that letter in heaven. We don't have that letter on hand today. But I imagine the Lord might have a copy of it in the heavenly libraries. John describes Diotrephus as a man who loves to have the preeminence. Preeminence. Literally in Greek, a lover of being first. A lover of being first. Do you know anyone who is a lover of being first? Are you like that? Do you love when everyone looks upon you? Do you covet power and prestige? Do you desire to be the center of everyone's attention? Are you a man or woman who loves to have the preeminence as Diotrephus did? 
Jesus said in Mark 9.35, If anyone desires to be first, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Our desire to be first must be put into check. In check with what Jesus has to say about being servant to all. And John also intended to put Diotrephus' attitude in check on his upcoming visit to the church. He says in verse 10, Therefore, if I come, a better way of really translating that is when I come. John is saying, I'm expecting to come. When I come, I will call to mind Diotrephus' deeds, which he does. Deeds of pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, Diotrephus does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. John plans to address, when he comes, Diotrephus' rampant selfishness and desire for power. Diotrephus was speaking maliciously of the apostles, but that wasn't all. He was also shunning the visiting missionaries that were coming to, to minister on the church's behalf, on the apostles' behalf. But that wasn't all. He was even threatening excommunication to those in his church that hosted those delegates. Diotrephus had arisen in his church to a level of power that he could command or threaten the people with a kind of excommunication if they defied him and decided to host these apostolic delegates. We might wonder, we really might wonder at this point, how did this man get such power? Think about that. How did you read, you're reading what Diotrephus did here in verse 9 and 10. You're seeing that he was speaking ill and maliciously of the apostles, he was refusing their delegates, and he was telling everyone in his church, if you host them, you're out of here. We might wonder, in a 21st century context, how did this man get to this point in leading the church? How how did that kind of man get so much power? Friends, this, this, is what inevitably happens when the elders of a church become weak and when one man alone rises up in great power. Zane Hodges writes, it's on the back of your outline there, the rise of Diotrephus to preeminence suggests that the other elders allowed him, allowed him to have his way. This often happens even today when a strong personality sits on an elder board where the rest of the elders tend to be passive. More often than not, one man leadership is deeply flawed, if not in the way Diotrephus was flawed, in other ways that can be just as bad. Here again, friends, we, as we learned a couple of weeks ago in our study of a plurality of leaders, there is great wisdom in having many well-qualified, active leaders, elders, and teachers in a church. Without a plurality of strong, godly leaders, a church is only inviting trouble. And so the first, the first, and the best question when considering the health of a church is not the question, who is its pastor? 
That's not the first question in assessing the spiritual health and vitality of a church. It is not to ask, who is the church's pastor? The better question to ask is, who are the elders? Who are the elders of a church? Let me see these leaders. Let me look at their life. Let me see how active they are. And based on their activity and their level of engagement and their focus on the spiritual matters of the church, then I might be able to assess a church's health. Not based on one man. Many will look, many will look for a winsome, funny, and charismatic figure to be their pastor. But few look for strong and seasoned elders, men of good wisdom, gifted and capable to lead God's church. Show me a church of such leaders and you will likely find a strong and healthy local church. Having warned Gaius now, having warned him about Diotrephus and the rise of power that this man had undertook, John urges Gaius to stay focused on doing right in the eyes of God. He says in verse 11 and 12, Beloved Gaius, do not imitate what is evil but what is good he who does good is of God but he who does evil is not seen God Demetrius he has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself and we also bear witness and you know that our testimony is true in verse 12 we meet Demetrius who is Demetrius well in all likelihood he's the traveling missionary that John is sending to Gaius He's the reason for the letter. John is sending Demetrius and he's saying, Gaius, receive this man. He's a good man. I vouch for him. The apostles vouch for him. All those around him vouch for him. The truth is in him. But Gaius, be warned. Diotrephus will try to prohibit you from hosting this man. Diotrephus will try to keep this man away. But notice, friends, this is a very um, eye-opening spot in the New Testament. Notice, in verse 11 and verse 12, essentially what John is telling Gaius to do, if you break it down, you whittle it down to its, to its core, what John is telling Gaius to do is to defy one of the elders of his church. Perhaps even the primary pastor elder of that church in Asia Minor. The Apostle John is telling Gaius, do not listen to that elder. Do not listen to that elder. There does come a time when an elder, when a leader, when a pastor forfeits the right to lead. There comes a time when leaders in high places forfeit their right to lead. We are witnessing that right now in our own government with the IRS scandal that has come upon our nation and with other breaches of the public's trust. Who knows how far this scandal in our nation will go. The point is, is that people are resigning and being fired in our nation right now because they have lost the trust 
of their office. They have forfeited the public's trust. Diotrephus has forfeited the church's trust. And John tells Gaius, defy that elder. Do not listen to him. Ignore him. I will come soon and I will remove him from his office. But it takes a strong, a strong plurality of leaders to root out such evil. And sadly, churches, a church environment in which a man like Diotrephus can rise up is rarely a place where there are strong godly elders. So instead of rooting out the evil, churches endure years and years and years of authoritarian abuses until one day it all comes crashing down. And many leave such a church deeply wounded. But if you want to avoid cataclysmic failures in a church, if you want to avoid cataclysmic failures in your company, in your organization, in your school, then appoint a plurality of well-qualified leaders, not just one. Can a man like Diotrephus arise to power in a church of a strong plurality of elders? It's possible. It's possible. But you know what? It's highly unlikely. You can tell by John's letter to Gaius that the church in that region of Asia Minor was weak. They had weak leaders, weak need leaders, who let this man rise up and abuse his power all the while unchecked. That is why God designed church leadership in the way that he did, that no one person could have a heavy hand. Gaius instructs, excuse me, John instructs Gaius, imitate what is good. He who does good is of God, He who does evil has not seen God. Let me define that briefly. He who does good is of God. That is to say, the good things that we do, they're sourced in God. All the good that we do is from God. It's done in God. It's done through God. It is of God when we do good and imitate the good. But he who does evil has not seen God. That is to say, when we do evil, it's because we're blinded from the truth. Evil acts demonstrate that we don't have our eyes on God. John is not suggesting, and let's be clear, John is not suggesting that those who do evil cannot be saved. It's not what he's saying. Ironically, ironically, as much as John loathes the character of Diotrephus, as much as John hates what he sees in that elder, he never once calls into question his salvation. Never once. Instead, John focuses on his moral failures, on his pride, on his abuse of power, on his arrogance, on his boasting. Never once does John call into question Diotrephus' salvation. In fact, it was probably still the case that Diotrephus all the while had been a believer in Jesus Christ but had lost sight of God. He who does evil has not seen God. He's not looking upon him. He's not seeing him clearly. He's doing evil because he's not looking upon the Lord. The evidence shows that Diotrephus had lost sight of what God expected of him as an elder in the church. And John closes with these words, verses 13 and 14. I had many things to write, Gaius, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak 
face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. He says, I'm coming to visit soon, Gaius. I'm looking forward to seeing you. But in the meantime, be at peace. Know that many of my friends, John says, greet you and are cheering you on as a man of God in your church in the face of great hostility from a key elder, no less. John is rooting for Gaius. He and his apostles and delegates are cheering him on, saying, stay the course. Help is coming. Hold tight. Hold tight. A few words of application on your outline. What can we learn from 3 John? Number one, elders, be godly, write this down, active, 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 active elders. Be godly, active leaders. The more engaged you are in shepherding the church, the less chance a man like Diotrephus can arise. I tell you today, that church had no strong elders. If they did, that man would not have arisen or he, his power would have been checked early on a man like Diotrephus arises in an environment where the elders and leaders are weak. Elders, you be godly and be active. To the church, honor the elders, as the New Testament teaches, unless they forfeit their office because of unorthodox teaching or immoral behavior. We are to honor our elders, as we've learned many times over now in the last few weeks. But there's one caveat, and that is they they will forfeit that honor once they go astray from God's word or once their behavior, their actions tend in an immoral way. Until that day comes, we show them honor, we show them respect. Finally, sow seeds of spiritual vitality now to reap a measure of physical blessings and certain eternal blessings hereafter. Sow seeds of spiritual vitality now to reap a measure. We don't know what it'll be, but there'll be a measure of it now in this life. A measure of physical blessings now and certain eternal blessings hereafter. 1 Timothy 4.8, I didn't uh, read it for you earlier, but I'll read it now. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, bodily exercise... Working out, that'll profit a little. But godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Paul told Timothy, if you exercise godliness now, if your spiritual vitality is strong now, it will have benefits in this life and it will certainly have benefits when this life is over. Stay the course. Show honor to your elders. Pray for them that they might remain strong and active. And elders, be ready to lead and guide and engage the church that we might keep her pure, unadulterated, and focused on the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great story in the New Testament. What a microcosm of a church situation, God, that we see magnified and reproduced many times over in the 21st century. God, we are well acquainted with abuses of power, both in our nation, even right now, and in the church. 
We've seen it before, God. We've seen it when one man rises up too high and the church suffers because of it. But God, that's why you've given us a better pattern. Elders, a plurality of leaders. Whether it's a church, whether it's a company, whether it's an organization, a school. God, let us rise up a plurality. That an abusive that an abuser like a Diotrephus could never rise up nearly as high as he did in this church. Help us, Lord, to pay heed to the admonitions that John gave to Gaius in this book. Let us hold up your standards first, honoring the elders when they're worthy of honor, yes, but when they abuse that right, God, that we would always seek to honor you first and foremost. You are our chief shepherd, Jesus. And we, under your care and supervision, will humbly shepherd the church under your direction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.